This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello, and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Corey Trotbutter, and I lead Mercer's U.S. Endowment and Foundation practice. I'll be your host today, and as we discuss uh, the release of our 2023 top considerations for endowments and foundations. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by a few of my very experienced colleagues from around the world that bring a wealth of knowledge from their particular regions. I get the privilege of chatting with them very frequently, and I'm excited to offer the benefit of that same knowledge transfer to our audience today for a truly holistic global perspective. Joining me today is Gilles Lavoie, who is a senior investment consultant based in Montreal, Canada. Also offering up an across-the-pond view is Gareth Donegan, a senior investment consultant located in our UK office. Welcome to you both, and and thanks for joining me today. Um, We've had quite the year so far. Um, Investors globally really had to lock arms given the interconnected challenges that were presented, and I think you know we all can agree there was really no shortage of market impacting headlines. And as we do on an annual basis, we've identified four important strategic challenges currently facing endowments and foundations that will likely be of extreme importance in 2023. And I really want to spend our time uh, with you here today to introduce those approaches, the views, and how to navigate the current market environment to improve the odds of your portfolio's long-term success Uh, obviously, while also in the midst of managing these short-term disruptions or or noise in some instances. So uh, let's get started. Uh, And really kind of what better place to start is with the two I words, uh, inflation and interest rates. Those those dreaded words that that frankly, we've been preparing client portfolios for, uh, for over the last few years. You know, they've shown up in our prior top considerations Higher inflation was one of the main investment challenges cited by respondents this year in our first global endowment and foundation survey. But really, inflation and interest rates really made a splashy arrival this year. And and we know that all investors are currently confronted with this uh, in the current market environment. Really, no one has been immune. But what I would really like to focus on is how we're suggesting endowments and foundations adapt to these pressures and dare I even say it, are there even any opportunities uh, to be had? And so maybe let's let's start with our friends from the north. So, Jill, um, how might uh, endowments and foundations be able to capitalize on those those two eyes, as I'll phrase it? Uh, thank you, Corey. Uh, well, I think that on the inflation side, I think capitalizing may be putting too much of a positive spin, spin on it. It's more <laughs> trying to deal with it in, in the short term. I know that we've been talking about the fact that inflation might be uh, transitory, which is not looking to be the case anymore. But before we, we, we tackle inflation, let's talk about interest rates. Uh, because now, for years, we've been telling people at some point, interest rates are going to go up, interest rates are going to go up. Um, we thought it was going to be a bit more of a smoother increase. Uh, the rapid increase we've seen now took a lot of people by surprise. And I think that 
Um, you know, I also consult on DB plans, defined benefit plans, and that increase in interest rates was a godsend for them because it helped them reducing liabilities. So overall, for them, they put their financial position uh, improved. You don't have the same thing with regards to endowments and foundation. Now, they've been dealing with that low interest rate for years now. And one of the ways they were doing that was taking on more credit risk, taking on more equity risk. They simply could not have as the foundation of the investment program being fixed income like they had in the past because you had higher expected returns. Now, I think if you look at it now, I think it's time to reassess uh, going away from that sovereign debt, from that you know uh, more less credit exposure, more uh, stable um, fixed income type of investment products to become, again, the bedrock of your program. Um, it provides liquidity. And I think we're going to be talking about private markets in a few minutes as being also a way of dealing with inflation and dealing with the fact that you still need uh, returns. But I think that it's it's time at that point to see, well, is there something we can do in going back to get earning those higher yields? Um, I'm not trying to say that interest rates have stopped increasing, but I think that from where they started and how they increased so far, the likelihood of that happening, and that again, is somewhat remote. So it does provide some nice, attractive, uh, yields on some investment that can help you meet your your objectives. Now, inflation is throwing a bit of a spanner in the works because a lot of those of our clients have an inflation plus something type of a return objective. And the return for an endowment foundation is trying to, to do three things. Obviously, they, they're giving grants, right? They are there to help people out. They have, they have a mission and they try and one the part of meeting the mission is giving money away. So we need that to return. You need to make these organizations run. So you have an operating uh, cost as well. But a third one, which for years was not that big of a deal, is actually maintaining the purchasing power of your assets. So trying to grow assets faster than inflation. Now, and that's why they have a CPI plus something return objective. Well, when CPI is at 1.5, 2%, and you have like plus three, plus four, not that big of a deal. Now, if CPI is at 6 7%, and you have like 3 plus 4, you're looking at 10% return. So even like fixed income potentially giving you like, I don't know, like 4 or 5%, you're still well short of that. And I think that's what people are trying to navigate. And I know it's it's a long-winded answer. I want to make sure that Gareth and, and you, Corey, also have a chance to, to speak on that. But the one thing I would say, the fact that the returns have been challenging 2022, and that is true. However... The, the thing to remember is that returns in 2021 and 2020 were extremely positive. And I've, some of our clients also received record donations. So, I mean, the asset base, even after what we've achieved in 2022, I know it hurts. It hurts a lot. But it's still in most of them still in better position than they were two or three years ago. Gareth, yeah, anything you want to add on my yeah, long-winded Gareth. answer? Yeah, no, some some fantastic points um, thrown in there. Um, and just to kind of give you a, a bit of a kind of like a UK perspective from this side of the pond, we're seeing exactly those same type of conversations um, just in terms of, yes, we've got CPI plus targets. How do we actually try to achieve them in the short term? Because they are quite stretching at the moment. But the thing that we always come back to as um, the investor base that we have is effectively their long term in nature. So don't be thinking that you need to beat CPI plus three or four today, whenever it sits at 10%. Think about how you're going to beat that over the longer term. 
And that allows you to be very strategic then about how you kind of tap into new opportunities and indeed actually identifying some entry points. And so just to try to put some positive spins on what we've actually seen from some of the interest rate and inflation volatility that we've seen is that we have actually seen some repricing of assets where people who have the ability to take on some of that volatility risk or indeed have had some dry powder have been able to actually get in there and get some quite attractive assets at some quite marked down prices. So within the UK, for example, we've actually seen a, a bit of a, a kind of write down on property assets in response to essentially some of the higher increases in guilt yields and indeed heightened inflation expectations. So we've seen investors being able to get attractive entry points, both on the primary issuance market and also on the secondary market into actually high quality property portfolios. And that has been fantastic in terms of like those type of opportunities that if you're willing to take a step back, be strategic about how you want to try to get into your longer term objectives, there are opportunities out there. However, the point raised um, obviously is you also need to take account of essentially wider organizational and impacts. So spending requirements are essentially something that a lot of kind of um, clients are looking at very, very hard at the moment. And that's how do they keep pace with them? Do they need to scale that back? Or indeed, is there some way that they can essentially try to generate more income from their portfolio, which is becoming a bit more palatable now with some of the higher yields. And also one thing that we probably shouldn't um, forget is that actually with kind of greater pressure on cost of living um, out there in the kind of the wider economy, a lot of clients are actually starting to grapple with, well, what does this mean for donations um, into essentially our portfolios? And effectively, what do we need to do to actually try to account for that? So we're seeing a lot of them kind of do some scenario analysis on that and seeing whether some of their assets can actually do some of the heavy lifting as well. So there's risks out there, but also opportunities as well. Yeah, and from a from a U.S. perspective, you know, I echo a lot of your same you know similar comments on the inflation and interest rate side. Um, you know, most investors are are definitely looking to try to take advantage of of these higher rates, and so a lot of re- again revisiting you know strategic asset allocations. It's been extremely important, um, you know, with the underlying assumption that potentially maybe portfolios don't have to take as much risk any any longer to achieve you know return goals or, or objectives. This is particularly true um, within the U.S., I think, for the fixed income portion of portfolios, which has become such a small component over the years of, of endowment and foundation portfolios, given our historically you know, low, low, low rates. But that is all being flipped on its head a bit. Um, and discussions have started on when and if to increase exposure now, which has been a bit, um, you know, I think a, a definitely a, a big wind change just in terms of, of discussions that now, you know, at the forefront of meeting agendas and conversations is fixed income, which, you know, over the last handful of years, no one wanted to talk about fixed income. Um, so that's been a bit refreshing uh, that there's been a bit more focus and attention there. In terms of spending, we haven't seen much uh, change in terms of spending, but I do um, caution and, and know that we need to keep it at the forefront of our minds if we continue to see inflation figures continue to come in uh, over the course of the next couple of years high. Uh, and for clients that have or endowments and foundations that have, uh, you know, a me- methodology that uses the trailing three-year returns, trailing three-year inflation numbers, uh, it might get to be a bit more challenging to meet those objectives. So definitely something something that, that, we're, that we're watching. Um, and I really well, hate if I that. If I may, Corey, I think. Oh, sorry, oh, cut you off. Oh, no, go ahead, please. 
No, it's interesting you talk about spending because I think that there's two sides of that coin, at least from a Canadian perspective. First of all, the the federal government has actually is introducing new rules and laws that would increase the minimum that you need to spend every year from 3.5% to 5%. An additional headwind for Canadian Foundation, because at the time that you know, if you thought that reducing spending could be a way of protecting capital and trying to uh, manage all these risks, it, it becomes less possible in Canada. But also, if you think about the mission of our clients or even the, the industry in general, it is a heart-wrenching decision to reduce your spending at a time when the people that benefit from those grants and those spends actually might have a greater need for that money than they had in the past. So it's kind of happening at the worst possible time for um, these organizations to meet their objectives and mission. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. Um, And I hate to move on um, from the exciting conversation of all things uh, inflation and interest rates, but I know those those themes are going to kind of find their way into each of our considerations this year. uh, And rising interest rates have been particularly unkind to public markets. Uh, both equities and fixed income, which is the second consideration I want to uh, chat about today. Some sectors have been more impacted than others. Think growth-oriented tech sectors. Uh, and really, as long-term investors, endowments and foundations should not remain too static, we believe, uh, in their public market exposures and really kind of seek to capitalize on finding opportunities amid this volatile market environment that certain industries, certain sectors, and potentially even certain regions could offer. So my question to my friends here today is within your regions, are you seeing any opportunities or attractive entry points uh, for some long-term trends to lean into uh, in spite of some of the headline losses uh, within within public markets? And and Gareth, I'll, I'll start with you. You're kind of a little bit of an easy target here given all the guilt headlines uh, so so let's let's uh, let's hear your perspective. Yeah, it's 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 been a pretty quiet couple of months in the UK, hasn't it, Corey? Um, <laughs> yes. Just in terms of what what we've been doing, um, but no, we we um, we've probably been the poster child. I would I would say for essentially kind of like the volatility and guilt markets, and then effectively then what that has done in terms of repricing um, of essentially a, a lot of assets and. And so it, it's it's actually, it's thrown up a lot of volatility, but it's also thrown up a lot of really, really good discussions um, in terms of how we can actually take advantage of some of the opportunities, how we should be stress testing portfolios, and indeed, if there are any areas that we really should be taking advantage of and, and going into. So, for example, um, we've already talked about uh, effectively investors looking at essentially you know sovereign bonds and um, becoming a lot more attractive with the higher yields on them and that can actually start to form a portion of their portfolio and it can just bring down the risk profile a bit um for them so that works really really well and we're also seeing um given the increase in yields and indeed some of the spread widening that we've seen that a lot of credit type assets um are looking very attractive um for investors especially those investors who have maybe got a bit more of a risk appetite and we would say that some of the repricing of that type of credit assets um, particularly is giving you really, really attractive returns for the perceived level of default in that. So we're talking to a lot of investors about whether they want to reallocate more to that. 
Within equities, you've hit the nail on the head there whenever you were talking about effectively growth um, in terms of a style has actually really struggled over the past 12 months, um, just given with the higher interest rate and the higher inflation environment. And so we've been talking to quite a lot of investors in the previous 12 to 18 months about, you know, what sort of styles do we actually have within the portfolio? Should we actually be diversifying some of those? So don't always stay static. And we have seen some investors rotating more into essentially value-oriented strategies, but also then looking at managers who have the ability to be nimble, to actually kind of tap into those areas of the market that they believe have actually been oversold. You know, because there are still some very, very good companies who would be still growth-oriented in terms of their kind of style bias, but we think that they're good long-term players. So we have been seeing managers looking at trying to tap into them as well. The other thing that we are seeing big in terms of the theme is that investors are actually taking the, the recent volatility and indeed looking longer term strategically about impact investing. And I know we'll come on and discuss a wee bit later on um, in terms of tapping into essentially ESG and what that means. But we're seeing investors thinking about longer term themes. Is there actually themes that we can actually buy into now at depressed prices that have a longer term impact? that then fulfills a dual role um, within your portfolio. And we see that as a really attractive area um, within equity investment. And then I probably um, can't uh, finish off without mentioning the ability to actually be nimble. Um, The big thing that we have always been saying to investors is essentially talk about your governance structure. Make sure that you are actually putting in place those type of managers who can actually be nimble and put dry powder to work and change your portfolio for you. And then also make sure, quite frankly, that you can meet around the table in order to be able to make these decisions and capture opportunities as and when they arise. So we're seeing a lot more clients have good discussions around that, but also then to to put in place managers and indeed more non-traditional asset classes that can give them that ability to add value and get into those themes good and early. So, so. The, the the name of the game in the U.S. has also been uh, opportunistic, nimbleness, flexibility. So very similar themes there. Um, Jill, is that the same for you in, in Canada? Yeah, I think we need to, to keep in mind that the, the Canadian market in general tends to have small organizations. And so that nimbleness, if you have a committee meeting, once every three months becomes a bit more difficult to implement, right? And what kind of analysis you want, how comfortable you are in making what sounds a bit like almost like tactical decision. And I think the tactical is kind of a short-term basis. I think we're trying to talk to our clients more like in a dynamic type of, of, of view. So more like two or three years at a time. So you, you put something in place, you review it, needs to be lively. But this is not a day trading account. You are long-term investors. You will have some short-term volatility like we're going now. But when you have extreme markets like you have right now, you need to be able to make those decisions. But again, it, it goes back to the governance and how, how complex your portfolio might be and how well diversified it is. And I think that's the other uh, challenge it is when we make those type of papers or when we're making those types of podcasts is that the audience might have includes some very sophisticated, large Endowments, even small ones, can be sophisticated. I don't want to be—I uh, want to do any sizeism here, but um, that have the governance structure and have the 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 the, the investments in place to be able to be that nimble. And if you have other organizations that are less sophisticated in in, in, in how they're investing, maybe because they have something in line with the governance structure that they have, and they're more like in in, in uh, traditional asset classes, none of those privates and those so on and so forth, it becomes a bit harder. So I think it needs to be important that. 
Yeah, before you do any movements that you are confident that you've clearly identified the trend you're trying to capture and how that's going to be reflected. And I know we, we're, we're tackling these topics kind of separately, but they're not really separate, right? You, you, all these things where we're talking about ESG, right? You're talking about like, okay, what is the right time to go into something? Well, if you think about your ESG beliefs that you might have, there's going to be a transition for climate change, right? You need to have mining being done. You need resources. You need copper. So actually, interesting enough, for years now, I've been telling our clients they should reduce the allocation to gain equities because it is a small market made up, not diversified, cyclical, made up of smaller companies. But actually, if you look at what's needed right now, what's part of the Canadian market, the banking institutions are extremely solid. We have a bunch of materials uh, you know, copper and so on and so forth. There's going to be needed potash and so on and so forth. So we have good things on that side. And then the energy as well. Okay, oil and gas is always a bit of a finicky discussion. We can talk about that a bit later on as to how efficient that visitor is or you want to have a seat on the table to make things change. So actually, that's one of the opportunities we see in the Canadian market. So, well, maybe you need to reassess your Canadian location, what you do in terms of your... Uh, your uh, emerging markets. If we see people doing like, um, I don't remember that, like right shoring, reshoring, repatriation, deglobalization. I don't know what time is being used, but basically that that globalization we're pushing production elsewhere, and then you want to benefit from that. But actually, if we bring it back in house a bit more, that creates other needs. And I think you know we talk about themes about ESG, but the other way of taking that themes around private markets. So as I said, all these things are kind of linked and it, it becomes difficult to just identify one thing. There are multiple points of view to be taken and how these are going to be uh, impacting your portfolio is interesting. But the fact remains, long-term investors, they should be tinkering with things all the time unless it's something quite uh, evident. And I think that that increase in yields is something quite significant that, that requires a change. And I think the trends around ESG and transition, how you're able to achieve that. And I think it requires conversation with your existing clients, your existing clients, my apologies, existing investment managers to understand where they stand with regards to these themes and opportunities and how they are modifying the portfolio. So before you start changing things willy-nilly, I think it's important to, to have a good grasp in understanding what you have, not just from an asset class level, but the implementation uh, with the managers. Yeah, Jill, and I'm going to bounce off of something that you mentioned just with respect to also understanding there's not only opportunities within the public markets, but also within the private markets, which actually uh, is our third uh, uh, consideration for 2023. And it's not going to come really as any shock to any uh, endowments and foundations that that is one of our considerations, given just the high usage uh, of private markets within portfolios. And we continue to believe there's a window of opportunity to seize uh, opportunities within private markets, in particular, those that might be capacity constrained. So those high conviction managers that maybe other investors might be forced to place less emphasis on in these in these areas. And so really investing in illiquid asset classes has long been a trend for endowments and foundations. And Continue to be a provider of capital to these strategies is going to be very important as, as we move forward. And from, you know, a U.S. point of view, um, we're not, you know, investors usage of, of private markets and the diversification that they bring has paid off very handsomely this year. It's helped endowments and foundations avoid, I think, really the full impact of the decline in public markets. We're not seeing endowments and foundations hitting the brakes uh, on, on these strategies or these allocations either. 
um, especially within private equity and, and impact-oriented strategies, as you mentioned earlier, Jill. Um, and kind of given market movements, you know, we think that it's going to continue to be imperative to just assess your illiquidity tolerance uh, and continuously update your commitment pacing models uh, in these areas. We're seeing managers come back to market very fast. Uh, so re-ups are plentiful. Uh, investors are going to have some tough decisions to make. Uh, given just overall market values have declined, you know, coupled with just that appetite to allocate to up and coming managers, managers that might be offering new uh, or more capacities. So you're really there's there's no shortage of opportunities in private markets uh, and investors are going to have to be very discerning uh, with their due diligence uh, coming into 2023. And so maybe kind of back to you, Jill, is there given this kind of vast opportunity set within private market strategies, any interest you're seeing in a particular market, particular subsector um, that's been that's been of interest? Well, I think that the, the big one is real assets um, because they, they help on multiple uh, levels. They help with regards to inflation mm-hmm. uh, because they tend to be able to price things. So it, it's a good protector while giving you interesting returns. On the infrastructure side, you're able to do something with regards to um, climate change transition or ESG. It's a bit easier to implement that through those type of, of strategies. But I think the if you can step back, you mentioned liquidity. It, it still mesmerizes me at times when you have endowments and foundations saying, well, we need liquidity. Why do you need that much liquidity? I don't understand. If you're a DB plan, you, you tend to have a great need of liquidity because you're paying pensions. They tend to be quite mature. So the high pension payments, they're well-funded because of what happened. Like the, the increase in interest rates was beneficial for them. The They need to pay potentially leverage. One of the reasons is that they were more impacted by increasing yields because they were at the longer end of the duration. They had leverage that required capital as well. And then they have capital calls on private markets, right? Multiple sources of needs of liquidity. If you're not in found and all the assets that they receive, they invest. Now, when you get an endowment, a lot of my clients, what they do, they get money donations, they put it in their short-term fund. And when that short-term fund becomes quite large compared to their liquidity projections or need cash requirements, then they put it in the long-term portfolio. So they do have liquidity on that short-term and things. And then after that, they just need to do the spending every year and, and do the, um, uh, the pay for the, the expenses of the organization. So the liquidity requirements of endowments is quite low. So they are a provider of liquidity. They are a long-term investors. They're not going to buy annuities. And as such, you should be able to benefit from that. And I have a lot of my DB clients who actually with the, that significant reduction in their assets other than privates, the relative weight of privates has increased significantly above their target. And actually, you're taking a break on commitments or actually reducing the amount of commitments. So that creates an opportunity for providers of liquidity, such as and foundation, to step into the gap. So we've danced around, I think, our last consideration um, quite a bit on uh, so far, and that's just all things related to ESG or environmental, social, and governance. Um, you know, this year we've seen that kind of growing backlash against ESG investments around the world, you know, especially as some of these strategies have been challenged uh, as a result of limited or, or kind of lack of exposure to, you know, a few areas that have done well, like like energy. And from where I sit in the U.S., there's been a movement to even ban uh, asset managers from doing business with, with state entities if they're screening out uh, certain types of companies like oil and gas. And, and Gareth, you know, ESG and sustainability has long been a focus in the U.K., so against this kind of backdrop um, of both increasing interest in sustainability, you know, issues from, you know, mission alignment perspective 
And on the other side, the pushback against the sustainability culture, are you seeing investors wavering in their commitment to ESG? Um, in, in short, no, um, Corey. I think um, investors have always been well informed in terms of the fact that ESG isn't just essentially a sprint. Um, it's it's more kind of a part of their kind of like long term planning and indeed um, mission alignment. And and I think everyone's very well aware that there will be periods of time essentially where essentially some sort of ESG elements will come under pressure, um, both from other areas in the market not performing are performing a lot better, or indeed effectively just people essentially can like questioning just essentially how you're actually embedding ESG into your portfolio. And, and we think it's always very important just to essentially engage um, with essentially your underlying investment managers and indeed get them to engage with the essentially the companies that they're actually putting money with. And that's where the real kind of power um, of ESG um, comes from. And Whenever we think about it, you know, it, it is all about trying to actually make sure that you've got sound risk management over the whole entire investment portfolio that you look at, because let's not kid ourselves here. As, you know, in Diamond and Foundation investors, you're not investing for like a 10-year time period here. You're investing for a very, very long um, period of time. In which case, you know, the probability that essentially climate change in some sort of shape or form impacting your pro uh, portfolio, it starts to gravitate to one. You know, you are going to be impacted by this in some way or form. So therefore, burying your head in the sand and not trying to take account of it and the impact that it would have in your portfolio is actually going to lose money, quite frankly. So we've seen a lot of investors kind of say, look, up, we need to understand this. We need to continue to engage on it. And indeed, one of the things that we've seen with the energy sector having done so well um, over the past 12 to 18 months is that actually investors are realizing, OK, well, we do need to engage with a number of these companies about you're making very large profits now. But how are you then going to reinvest those profits? How are you going to start to transform your business? And that's where ESG and indeed that engagement side of it becomes really, really important for um, endowment and foundation investors on a forward-looking basis. We've also seen clients take the opportunity to actually really understand the impact of, um, of essentially kind of like forward-looking risks on their portfolio from a scenario perspective. And that can actually help you essentially kind of start to position your portfolio for areas that might benefit from any kind of transition to a lower carbon economy, or indeed identify those areas that you maybe need to engage a bit more on and actually help the underlying companies start to get themselves prepared for that uh, transition to a lower carbon. So in a very long-winded way, Corey, um, unfortunately, of saying no, it hasn't come off the agenda. And um, we do recognize that there is pressure on it. But I actually think pressure is a good thing because what it does is it sharpens the focus on it. And indeed, it makes sure that those good practices rise to the top. And then effectively, those bad practices or essentially the practices that could be improved are essentially kind of swept to one side. So all else being equal, I think we'll come out of the, all of this a lot stronger in terms of the ESG integration. Yeah, Gareth, I couldn't have said it better myself uh, within the U.S. Definitely it continues to be a focal point. Everyone wants a voice to influence corporate behavior. And I think that that's just, just going to continue. So it's about that time to, to, to wrap things up. And, and I hope we can leave you here uh, today with one holistic kind of key takeaway based on our discussion. Really just that endowments and foundations sit really in an enviable seat given their long-term focus and ability to withstand market turmoil. 
And therefore, the focus on objectives, on long-term strategy of these portfolios is really of utmost importance. Um, you know, Alibet with informed acknowledgement and uh, acknowledgements and assessment of some of the short-term noise along the way. So again, want to thank you both, Jill and Gareth, for joining me today. And of course, thank you to our listeners. If you would like to read the full report, you can find it in the description below. If you would like to discuss these considerations further, you can reach out to your local Mercer representative or email us at ctci at mercer.com. Thank you for listening.